In this section, Philippians 1, Paul mentions four essential reasons he was able to rejoice in spite of his difficult situation. Essential one, Paul had a divine perspective on his circumstances. He was able to see them as God sees them. Essential two, Paul focused on what really matters and what mattered to him and what should matter to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, let's start at essential three. Paul came at his less than desirable circumstances from a position of significant spiritual strength. Paul came at his less than good, less than desirable circumstances from a position of significant spiritual strength. Remember the particular situation Paul found himself in. Paul was in ancient Rome. He was under house arrest. He doesn't have an ankle bracelet. He has something more. He was a prisoner in a secured house, chained to a Praetorian guard. Praetorian guards, Roman guards, were chained to him and rotating four-hour shifts 24-7. He was never not chained to a guard. Paul was waiting there for an appointment to appeal his case to Roman Emperor Caesar. Paul had been arrested at Jerusalem, but that arrest was illegal, so he had justification to appeal his case. That meant Paul was incarcerated at Rome under house arrest, sitting there waiting to do that. Even though we aren't in Paul's same exact difficult situation, life as we understand it can be extremely difficult and frustrating. I read a cartoon showing a completely frazzled mother standing in the doorway of a house. She's holding a screaming baby. Three small children are draped around her legs and a dog is standing there barking nonstop. She's frustrated out of her mind and there is someone at the door taking a survey. The surveyor said, what do you mean you're undecided? Lady, all I asked was, do you live here? (laughs) But mothers aren't the only ones who are frustrated and at their wits end. A pastor left his church and someone asked him the reason for his exodus. He said, I was forced to leave because of illness and fatigue. And this inquisitive person seemed surprised and said, really, it was illness and fatigue? He said, yes, it was. My congregation was sick and tired of me. That's what happened. There's no question at times, life is hard for all of us. And Paul was no exception. So how was Paul able to cope here? How did he endure months sitting chained to guards? How did he survive this situation and do it with a positive attitude and do it with rejoicing? Philippians 1, starting at verse 19, has the answer to that question. For I know that this, this means the difficult situation he found himself in, his incarceration, this will turn out for my deliverance. Some commentators interpret this statement to mean that Paul was confident he would be freed. I don't believe that. He wasn't thinking about being released from house arrest. And we know that because starting at verse 20, he discusses his possible death. Paul fully understood that his appeal to Caesar might be unsuccessful. Caesar might reject his appeal. And if that happened, he could remain imprisoned or he could, could even be executed. That was entirely possible. And in the end, Paul did die 
as a Christian martyr. According to tradition, he was beheaded, uh, although it was not as a result of this particular imprisonment. Notice he said, for I know that this, this situation, will turn out for my deliverance. The word deliverance is translated from a Greek word that means salvation. And the older edition of the King James translation even reads salvation. But this word can also be translated as well-being and health. In the original language, one of the definitions for salvation is health. Used in an actual medical sense or used as a grammatical metaphor to describe someone's well-being. So I'm recommending substituting the word benefit for deliverance. Instead of deliverance in this statement, I'm using the word benefit, meaning Paul said, I am convinced that this less than desirable situation I find myself currently in is going to turn out to be for my benefit. I just know that this is going to be for my ultimate well-being and good. Verse 19 continues, For I know that this, this situation, will turn out for my deliverance or benefit. How was that possible? Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul was able to rejoice. He was able to be up. He was able to be positive and joyful in spite of this incarceration because he was convinced that this undesirable situation would at some point result in his ultimate benefit and good. And he held that positive attitude because he engaged his circumstances from a position of spiritual strength and stamina. And this verse states that strength he received was derived from two sources. Notice, first, is that Paul was able to cope because of prayers from his Christian friends at Philippi. People were praying for him. He counted on that, and that enabled him to cope. Notice the phrase, for I know that this, this house arrest, will turn out for my deliverance, his benefit, and how through your prayer. I am not so sure we understand how essential it is to both pray and to be prayed for. To pray for someone else is called intercession. That is the word used in Scripture, intercession. It means to intercede on the part of someone else to God. An interceding prayer from someone else for ourselves is essential to receiving the spiritual strength that we need to remain positive in the middle of difficult times. I read an interesting account. Um, research at San Francisco General Hospital has revealed that victims of cardiac problems who were consistently prayed for did much better than those that were not prayed for. Cardiologist Randy Bird assigned 192 patients to the prayed-for group and assigned 201 patients to the not-prayed-for group. Each of these individuals were patients in the coronary intensive unit, intensive care unit. And that meant their conditions were at minimal serious, or they wouldn't have been in intensive care, and more often than not, critical. These are serious cases. In addition, the patients themselves, the doctors and nurses, and hospital staff that, you know, assisted them, were only given, uh, they did not know which group the patients were put in. No one knew. Patients didn't know, staff didn't know, doctors, nurses, no one knew. Prayer groups were scattered across the nation, uh, different people around the nation. They were given the patient's first name, 
first name only, the diagnosis, and the prognosis. That's all the information they've been given. But the prayed for group were consistent to pray for those people in their group. The researchers said that the results were dramatic. The prayed for group developed fewer complications than the not prayed for group, and fewer deaths were reported from the prayed for group. The not prayed for group were five times more apt to develop additional infections requiring antibiotics, and three times more apt to develop a lung condition that could result in heart failure. These findings were all published in the Journal of the American Heart Association. Praying for one another does make a difference. So how smart is it to have a serious and sometimes immediate and urgent need and then not invite other people to pray about it? There are probably people in this room that are actually too proud to turn in a prayer request. Paul wasn't. Notice Romans 15 verse 30, Paul commented, Now I beg you, notice the language Paul uses here, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 25, Paul said, Brethren, pray for us meaning Paul and his associates. Paul literally begged those Christians at Rome and that congregation at Thessalonica to pray for him. John Wilbur Chapman, more often known as J. Wilbur Chapman, was a famous pastor and evangelist. He was called to pastor the Bethany Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in 1890. It literally had the largest Sunday school in existence at that time, and its worship center seated almost 5,000. This was a large, large congregation. He had just been called to that congregation. He was just 31. And after his first sermon there, an older member approached him and said to him, Son, you're too young to be the pastor of this church. And you're not a strong preacher. But you do preach the gospel. So I'm going to help you all I can. Dr. Chapman thought to himself that this man was just, in his words, an old crank. Um, We don't use that, but I've been that, I'm sure. Um, But this gentleman continued, he said, I'm going to pray that you would have the Holy Spirit's power on you. And two more men have coveted to join me in prayer for you. And Dr. Chapman said he felt much better after he learned this, that this man's intention was to pray for him. And this is interesting. Those three men, they coveted together to pray for Pastor Chapman, that God's power would be on him. Those three men became ten men. Those ten men became twenty men. Those twenty men became fifty men. That 50 men became 200 men. And ultimately, that group of men that prayed consisted of 1,000 men. Imagine that. 1,000 men, members of that congregation, praying that God would empower and bless their pastor. The result was that Bethany Presbyterian Church recorded more than 1,100 conversions in the next three years, and 600 of those were men. Because of the faithful prayers of, from that group of men, it is said that during his tenure there, Dr. Chapman witnessed more than 16,000 salvation decisions. 
because people prayer matters I remember conducting a funeral in another state and a man approached me after the service that had been part of one of our congregations prior to that literally decades earlier and we hadn't seen one another I was so excited to see him after all that time and he said to me after the service he said pastor I want you to know that I still pray for you every day and I thought this is hyperbole Um, I said every day seriously he said yes I pray for you every day and that was so humbling to hear because he hadn't seen me in all that time but he hadn't forgotten me and he prayed for me he brought my name to God's attention every single day prayer from someone else can give us the strength and the stamina we need to be able to rejoice during those times when we feel like all we want to do is just cry. And all of us have been there. Paul was able to survive that imprisonment. And he was able to rejoice in doing that. And it was in part because he understood his friends at Philippi were praying for him. Second, he had assistance from the Holy Spirit. He had assistance from the Holy Spirit. Notice the phrase from verse 19 one more time. For I know that this situation will turn out for my benefit or deliverance. How is that possible? Through your prayer and, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Unless I miscounted, there are 13 different names for the Holy Spirit that are mentioned in Scripture. One of those 13 names is mentioned here in verse 19. And it is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Let me interject a footnote and explain in more specific language the reason the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. John 16, notice verse 12. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Verse 13. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, this is another one of the Spirit's names, the Spirit of truth. When the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Verse 14, he, the Holy Spirit, uh, addressed here as the Spirit of truth, will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Notice this phrase in verse 14, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, meaning Jesus. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit on this earth during this time is to glorify Jesus Christ, meaning to give credence and credit to Jesus, to praise Jesus, to give adoration and admiration to Jesus, to elevate Jesus, to promote Jesus, to extol Jesus, to bless and to worship Jesus. That is one of his functions. Charles Swindoll, the popular author, said, If you get involved in a ministry that glorifies itself instead of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is not in that ministry. If you follow a spiritual leader that is getting all the credit for that ministry instead of Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit is not empowering His leadership. If you are part of a Christian school or a mission organization or a Christian camping ministry, and I might add, or a congregation in which someone other than Jesus Christ is being glorified, then it is not being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Understand that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ. And get this, if the Holy Spirit himself 
is being emphasized and magnified to the exclusion of Jesus Christ, then he isn't in that either. Jesus Christ is the person that is glorified when the Holy Spirit is at work. That's the basic reason the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit's function now during this age is to glorify Jesus. Remember, as Christians, we believe there is one God. We're monotheistic, one God. But we're Trinitarian monotheist, meaning there is one God that exists in three co-equal persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, that same Holy Spirit that is a part of the Triune Godhead is inside of us as a Christian starting at our salvation. So as a Christian, the Holy Spirit inhabits us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit is a permanent resident inside our tangible bodies. He is in us. This word translated as supply... In this phrase, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ means full and complete resources. And that means the Holy Spirit that is inside us is the complete source of what we need to survive and rejoice in tough times. The Holy Spirit is inside us to empower us and enable us to be able to cope and remain joyful during adverse circumstances. We just need to count on him to do that. The problem is we forget he is there to do that. Paul said, I'm under house arrest. Yes, I'm incarcerated. I'm chained to praetorian guards. It's not the most fun, but I'm okay. I'm not having a bad day. I'm having a good day. I'm rejoicing. And how was Paul able to rejoice? Two reasons. Because his friends, he knew. His friends at Philippi were praying for him and he understood the internal Holy Spirit was acting as his source of rejoicing. Now there's a fourth and final reason Paul was able to rejoice. Number four, essential four. Paul's life purpose enabled him to survive those circumstances. Paul's life purpose enabled him to survive those circumstances. Verse 20, Paul said, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing... I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified, meaning enlarged, in my body, whether by life or by death. Let me explain this verse. Paul's expectation and hope was that in all that he was forced to endure as a prisoner, he would say or do nothing that he would be ashamed of as a Christian. He did not want to discredit Jesus Christ. Instead, he said, I want Jesus Christ to be magnified and enlarged in me, both in life and death. To Paul, his life or death didn't matter that much. That was not his primary concern, because what mattered to him most was that Jesus Christ be permitted to show off himself big in and through him. Paul wanted people to see less and less of Paul and more and more of Jesus. Verse 21, in this verse, Paul restated that desire in more specific language, and he stated it as being his life's purpose. Notice, Paul had a definite reason to live, and Paul had a specific reason to die. He said, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's amazing to me how in this affluent, sophisticated society, people have so much to live on and so little to live for. But Jesus gave Paul a reason to live for. I challenge each person in this room this morning, sometime after the end of this message, sometime this afternoon, sometime post-message, it doesn't matter, but fill in the blank space on the note sheet. Fill that blank in and be honest. For me to live is blank. To me to live is my career. To me to live is our children and grandchildren. To me to live are my hobbies. To me to live is hunting and fishing. To me to live is my boyfriend or girlfriend. One man said to me, to me to live is to smoke and drink. And if I can't do that, then I want to die. He got his wish. He died from lung cancer resulting from his two-pack-a-day smoking habit. He was a stupid, stupid, stupid man. The average honest answer to this question would probably fit into one, five, one of five general categories. One, for some people, for me to live are possessions. Possessions. This is a materialistic culture. And all of us get caught up in it from time to time. Some people, though, have a possession obsession. It might be subconscious. No one wants to admit that. But there is a desire to accumulate more and more and more stuff. And then more doesn't seem to be enough. And then we get into financial trouble. As the late columnist Ann Landers said, most of us would be willing to pay as we go if we could just finish paying for where we've been. Remember, he who dies with the most toys still dies and leaves all his toys behind. Second, for some people, for me to live is power. Politicians aren't the only power-hungry people, although there is a definite problem in that arena. Some people feel like they just have to be in control in, at all times, in all situations, and circumstances. Now, I admit, I sometimes, sometimes in some situations, am susceptible to this. One example, on an airplane, I insist on sitting on the aisle seat on the plane. Hopi wants to look out the window, so she sits next to the window. She sits next to the window, I sit next to the aisle, and we pray that no one will sit between us. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Um, the, reason, <laughs> the reason I want to be on the aisle is some, if I were against the window, Murphy's Law would be enacted, I'm certain, and there would be two large, large people uh, between me and the aisle. And then in that position, I'm not in control of the situation because I would have to get permission from two different people I don't even know just to use the restroom. And then I would have to try to climb over them, which would probably be very difficult because they're large and I'm large. It would be really ugly. And so I don't feel comfortable doing that. But other than some personal exceptions like an airplane, I've tried not to become a power monger or a control freak. But some people have never learned that lesson. Third, for some people, for me to live is pleasure. Pleasure. I'm not sure we understand how much pleasure dominates our thinking. 
there is all around us a societal fulfillment of 2 Timothy 3, verse 4. In that verse, Paul prophesied that just before Jesus returns, meaning, I hope now, that men would be lovers of pleasure rather than, meaning instead of, and or more than, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, don't misunderstand. Pleasure conceptually, is a gift from God. God blesses us. God grants us pleasure, all sorts of pleasure. That means it isn't wrong to love pleasure unless that pleasure is immoral and or illegal. But it is wrong if we love pleasure more than we love God. And to be honest, that is the position a sizable percentage of the population find themselves in. Pleasure-seeking. Hedonism. Four. For some people, for me to live is position. Position. Image is everything to some people. The reason some people want to get close to certain people that, according to them, hold an enviable position or an enviable status, the reason some people want to get close to that person, that very important person, is because if they get close to that person, it gives them a feeling of significance. There have been people that have tried to get close to me because I'm a, I'm a pastor. Uh, understand something. I am not that special. And if you doubt that, ask Hopi. Um, <laughs> if, if, if you give her immunity, immunity to prosecution, she will tell you the truth. Um, but I'm not that special, okay? I don't want someone to be a friend to me because of the position I hold as a pastor. I don't want someone to be a friend of me because of what I do as a pastor. I preach, uh, and some people appreciate that and admire that. I want someone to be a friend of me because of who I am. Because at some point, due to advancing age, I'm not going to be in this position. I'm not going to pastor this congregation. And at some point, due to advancing age, I'm not going to be able to do what I do now. I'm not going to be able to preach. But I'm still going to be me. And it would still be nice to have friends they cared about me. Number five, for some people, for me to live is popularity. Popularity. Do we understand that the person that was the big man on campus, and I never was that, I was never even part of the in crowd, the big man on campus can return to his alma mater 25 years after his graduation and no one is going to even remember who he was from a hero to a zero in no time at all. That's the reason John Cleaver said this, quote, the main emotion of the adult American who has all the advantages of money, education, and culture, his main emotion is disappointment. Disappointment. The big problem is None of the above-mentioned categories has a genuine sense of permanency and thorough fulfillment. None of them. If for me to live are possessions, then to die is to leave them all behind. If for me to live is power, then to die is to lose control of everything. If for me to live is pleasure, then to die is to never enjoy that pleasure again. If for me to live is position and prestige, then to die is to give it all up. If for me to live is popularity, then to die is to be utterly forgotten. It is said about a certain man 
that all he ever wanted in life was more. More. He wanted more money, so he parlayed his sizable inheritance into a multi-billion dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, so he broke into the Hollywood scene and soon became an actor and a filmmaker. He wanted more sexual pleasure, so he paid women ample sums of money to indulge himself in every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills, so he designed and built and piloted the fastest aircraft made. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political favors so skillfully that U.S. presidents became his pawns. It was so apparent that all this man ever wanted was more, more, more. He was absolutely convinced that more would bring him true satisfaction. Unfortunately, history indicates otherwise. He concluded his life emaciated, colorless, a sunken-in chest, fingernails in grotesque inches-long corkscrews, rotting black teeth, tumors all over his body, and innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction. He died believing the myth of more. He died a billionaire junkie, insane according to all reasonable standards. Probably most of us have heard of him. His name was Howard Hughes. And although the image on the right, on the screen, is horrific. Mr. Hughes was in a much, much worse condition near the end. He died a reckless, miserable, wretched man. Position, possessions, prestige, pleasure, popularity, and power. Understand, none of it matters after the grave. Because all that matters after death is our relation to Jesus. But this is a thought-provoking question. Can we in good conscience write the same thing down on paper? Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Some people misunderstand those of us that are Christians. I'm not a Christian just because I might die tomorrow. I'm also a Christian because I have to live today. I've often said if there were no pie in the sky by and by, I would still want Jesus for the normal and sometimes nasty now and now. The fact I live for Jesus and the fact He is my life purpose enables me to rejoice and to be positive and upbeat and optimistic in the middle of less than good circumstances. Imagine for a moment that our life is represented in a wagon wheel. This is a wa wheel minus the wagon. How it's standing upright, I do not know. But it's there. This is a visual aid. Imagine that each spoke of that wheel is representative of some aspect or component of our existence. Just pretend for a moment each sp spoke on this wheel represents some aspect of someone's life. There's a financial spoke. There's a dating spoke, an engagement spoke, a marriage spoke, and then there's a parental spoke, an employment spoke, and a career spoke, and an education spoke, and an athletic spoke, and a music spoke, and a hobby spoke, and a church spoke, on and on and on. And notice that all of these different spokes I just mentioned are still connected to the same hub in the middle of that wheel. The hub on this wheel represents Jesus. And that means all that we do in this life, 
All of these different spokes representing different components of who we are. All that we do in this life should be connected to Jesus Christ. Meaning that a Christian's hobbies, his finances, his marriage, and all other dimensions of his existence are to be connected to Jesus Christ. And that is the reason Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Question, what does Paul mean, to die is gain? The term gain, the word gain, means more of the same. Jot that down, it's not on the note sheet. Gain means more of the same. An example of that, this past Friday, the stock market gained 448 points before the closing bell. That meant that the Dow Jones average already had significant points, but it gained more points. It gained 448 more points, added on to the points it already had. So to gain means more of the same. So listen carefully. According to Paul, to live was Christ, and in a sense, to die would be more of Christ. Verse 23 is going to support that idea in just a moment. During the time we are alive on this earth, as a Christian, Colossians 1 verse 27, Christ is in you. As a Christian, um, during this time, we possess Jesus in a non-tangible, non-material, internal, invisible sense. Jesus Christ is present, resident inside us in a spiritual sense. But after death... And once we're in heaven, we're going to experience Jesus in a more tangible, more material, and more external and intimate relational sense because we're going to be together in an actual up-close and personal sense. Verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, meaning if I remain alive on this earth, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet, and notice this phrase, what I shall choose... I cannot tell. What I shall choose, I cannot tell. Putting these verses together, Paul said, if I die, I get to go to heaven and be with Jesus, up close and personal. But if I am alive and continue here on this earth, then I am able to assist and encourage this congregation in Philippi. So Paul, in his mind, had a dilemma. And the dilemma was that he was being torn between two possibilities. And to make it even more difficult, a legitimate case could be made for either one of those possibilities. A case could be made for going to heaven. A case could be made for remaining here and assisting that congregation. In a technical sense, this choice wasn't up to him because God was and God is in total control and God's the one that determines someone's life and death. We don't. But in his mind, Paul had strong feelings about both options. And he didn't know which one to choose if, if he could choose, because both options were legitimate. Notice he said, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. And that meant Paul didn't know what to do. He mentioned his dilemma again in more detail in verses 23 and 24. Let's address both options. Option one was for him to die and go on to heaven where he could see Jesus. Notice verse 23. For I am hard-pressed between the two. Paul meant that he felt 
he was between the proverbial rock and a hard place, having a desire to depart, to depart meaning to exit his body, and exit this earth meaning to die, having a desire to die and be with Christ, notice which is far better. Please understand, it doesn't read to be with Christ is better. It doesn't read to be with Christ is some better. But Paul said that it would be far better or much, much, much better for him to die and be with Jesus. It seems Paul was not able to find a word that could be adequate enough to describe the comparison between being on earth apart from Jesus and being in heaven with Jesus. The reason Paul said death was a better option for him was because to the Christian, death means instant heaven, where we can see Jesus. People want to know what specific biblical texts teach that. Christians go immediately to heaven after death. Uh, let me read just one passage that does that. One of my favorite texts, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. So we are always, always confident. Um, there's no conjecture here, no guesswork. We are always confident knowing, again, no speculation. This is not hypothetical. Knowing that while we are at home in the body, this means that while we are still alive, and, and we know that it means still alive because it says we are still in our bodies, and if we're in our bodies, we are alive. But while we are alive, we are absent from the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus. To be alive means the essence of who we are, this person we are, this soulish self, this invisible us, still exists inside our bodies if we are alive. Death, the word death throughout Scripture means separation. Something is separated from something else. So to die means the essence of who we are, our person, our invisible us, our soulish self, has exited our bodies. One more time, to be alive means we still inhabit our bodies. We're still in there. We're alive. But to be dead means we've evacuated our bodies. We're not there. Some of us, I'm sure, have sat beside someone as that person expired and it is so apparent that that person is in that body and then death occurs and it is so apparent that person is no longer in that body they're there then they're not that's death that means as long as I'm alive relegated to this earth if I'm still here on this earth then I cannot be in heaven because I cannot be in the same sense in multiple locations at the same time. I'm not omnipresent. Jesus is in heaven. So Paul said that as long as we are still alive on this earth, we are absence from Jesus in a tangible, material, relational sense. Now notice verse 8. We are confident. Again, the language he uses is one of surety. We are confident. Yes, well pleased rather. Meaning this is the preference to be absent from the body. That means to die, to evacuate our bodies. Our essence, evacuating our bodies means we have experienced death. To die and to be present with the Lord. People notice there is no time gap in this transition. We are alive, 
then we die. At the moment of death, in the next microsecond, we are in heaven as a Christian. This is immediate, this is instantaneous. Paul said his personal preference was to be in heaven. Because to be in heaven is to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Paul's estimation, to the Christian, death is to be preferred over life. Now don't misunderstand this. I don't believe Paul was suicidal. I don't believe that. But he did have a definite desire to die. And that sounds so foreign to us. Because we do all we can not to die. David Brainer was a famous missionary to the Native American Indians in the New England colonies in that area for more than two centuries ago. He said, quote, next to someone's conversion, death is the most blessed experience a Christian can have. Second option would be for Paul to remain alive where he would be able to minister on behalf of these Christians at Philippi. Those are the options. Verse 24, nevertheless, meaning in spite of the fact heaven would be a much better alternative, Paul said, nevertheless to remain in the flesh, that means to remain alive and not die, is more needful for you. Those congregants at Philippi. The congregation at Philippi still needed Paul's assistance, still needed Paul's encouragement, so he could be of continued benefit to them in a tangible sense if he hung around and remained alive. So those were Paul's basic options. If God said to me, if God said to me that I had five minutes to decide between being in heaven or remaining on earth, I had five minutes to decide between seeing Jesus in heaven or remaining here and continuing to pastor this congregation, and I understand I am expendable. If God gave me five minutes to make that decision, most people would argue that wouldn't be a difficult decision because no one wants to die. But that's not necessarily true. Because if we were as committed to Jesus Christ as Paul was, then that would be an extremely difficult decision. If for me to live as Christ then it would be better to go to heaven and see Jesus up close and personal. But at the same time, my continued presence might still be needed here at Shadow Mountain. Someone said that life is like a coin. We can spend it and use it any way we wish. But we can only spend it once. Paul said, I have one life, and I want to spend that life on the Lord Jesus Christ. So joyfulness, according to Paul, isn't that difficult. Joy is spelled J-O-Y, and that means Jesus, others, and yourself. Jesus, others, and yourself. There is no other acceptable and no other workable order. Let's bow our heads. Can we do that? Paul said he had two options. One, to die and go to heaven, which he said is far better. And a second option was to remain alive and minister to that congregation at Philippi. Well, he didn't have a say-so, which he would do, because God was in control of his life and death, as he is ours. But would he even consider, would any of us even consider heaven as an option? 
we almost consider it a default position or a last resort. I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I want to stay here as long as I can. And I think we should. I think we should want to be here so we can be of service to others and service to God. But uh, heaven is real. Heaven is so real. And the older I get, the more real I realize it is. And, and it is a much better alternative to this earth. I just pray that we will reevaluate ourselves, that we will ask hard questions, and that at some point we'll fill in that blank. For me to live is blank. I pray that someday soon we'll be able to put in there legitimately, honestly, sincerely, Christ. Father, you've heard this message. I pray you'll bless it to our hearts. Uh, we just we need to be reminded of these things. Um, none of us are anxious to leave this earth, but those of us who have a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus, have so much more to look forward to once we do. And we don't have an option. We can't decide to leave or decide to stay. That's your option. And uh, you exercise your prerogative, and we will accept that. But God, help us to make the most of our life here. Help us to live for Christ. And then look forward to that moment when we will see Christ in heaven. Uh, It's going to be unbelievable, indescribable, actually. So thank you, Lord, for this passage and for Paul's example. And I pray you'll use it to minister to each one of us. I pray and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.